so this evening then, it's my very great pleasure to introduce uh, Todd Gordon <coughs> and uh, Jeffrey Weber um, and to talk about their recent book, Blood of Extraction, Canadian Imperialism in Latin America. And those words, Canadian Imperialism, don't often feature together, but as you will be no doubt explaining to us, uh, they're very um, apposite for this particular case. Uh, so Todd here is um, Assistant Professor of Law and Society at Wilfrid Laurier University in Frankfurt and the author of Imperialist Canada and uh, also Cops, Crime and Capitalism. Uh, and Jeff Weber uh, is Senior Lecturer in the School of Politics and International Relations at Queen Mary University of London and the author of The Last Day of Oppression and The First Day of the Same the politics and economics of the new Latin American left, uh, and uh, another book, Red October, Left Indigenous Struggles in Modern Bolivia. So uh, I look forward to a fascinating talk about this. So please give a warm welcome to our speakers this evening. Tony and to the Institute uh, for organizing this event and inviting us here to speak. Uh, I wasn't sure uh, how this, the nature of this, uh, the content of this talk and its approach to Canada would fit in with the broader uh, series, so uh, perhaps it's a change, I'm not sure, and we'll we can have an engagement uh, on this question because I, it, uh, it probably does, at least in the title, and raises some questions people might have about calling Canada imperialist and so on. Uh, and so just uh, by way of preface, I'm going to say a couple things just about where the book came from, the motivation for it, and some of the background for it. And then Jeff's going to talk about uh, how we situate Canada at a, and understand imperialism at a theoretical level. Then I'm going to come back and talk about some more concrete stuff about Canada and Canadian foreign investment in the in, in, in Latin America and then just gonna come back and talk a little bit more about that and about social movement organizing in the Americas uh, with respect to uh, Canada's engagement. So this book came out in part of I had been working on a book that uh, Tony mentioned uh, called Imperialist Canada and uh, what it was it was a look at the way in which Canadian multinational corporations in the last 25 years or so they've always had an orientation to the global south particularly in mining although not exclusively in mining uh, <clears throat> but in the last 25 years or so the rate of foreign investment of Canadian companies mining banking uh, has uh, grown uh, dramatically into the global south what I'll call the global south uh, and was having, as more and more people were having a look at this, and more and more people were talking about it, and more and more communities were resisting this in the Global South, we were able to identify um, the systematic impact on human rights and, and the ecologies of people, particularly, though not exclusively, indigenous peoples in, in the Global South. And so I, and a number of other people, it's an increasing literature on this question that's situating Canada within the hierarchy of, of, of nation states in the global capitalist economy towards the top. Not a superpower, of course, that's obvious that it's not, but what some of us call a secondary imperialist power um, with a capacity to project its power politically and economically and with an interest in a structural and systemic interest to do so, particularly in the global south. Um, 
but not necessarily in the hegemonic way that you might identify with the United States, or some people might identify with China in particular parts of the world. And so the fact that it's not a hegemonic superpower doesn't mean that it's not an imperialist country. Uh, it just means that it, the role that it plays within the broader global system is different than the United States, and you have to understand it differently. So there's, 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 um, it dovetails in some important ways, but it also has its own particular dynamics. And so... Uh, what I discovered in, in the research, and Jeff and I did a paper on this as well several years ago before we started the book project, was that uh, while that foreign investment and the conflicts associated with it in Global South countries uh, is global in terms of the, the Global South and its scope, it was especially strong and controversial in the Western Hemisphere, in Latin America and, and the Caribbean. And so we thought it was worth actually having a, a specific focus on Latin America and the Caribbean uh, and, and, uh, and to develop analysis specifically to Canada's engagement into Latin America. And so obviously to refer to Canada, to Canada as an imperialist country uh, is um, perhaps uh, disorienting to some, I would say less so increasingly amongst a certain generation of uh, people on the political left in Canada, younger folks on the political left. Uh, but it's still, it might be disorienting for some, despite Canada having one of the largest economies in the world. Uh, as I said, it's not a superpower, but it's regularly in the top 15 in the world for, or around there for gross domestic product. Uh, it has, as I've already mentioned, in just in general, significant global economic interests. It has a rate of foreign direct investment around the world that is amongst the top in the world and in the global south that is amongst the highest of G8, G8 nations. Uh, it's engaged in at least five major military interventions in the last decade or so. It is constantly or regularly every year in the top, ten, top 15 of, of mil arms exporters in the world. It's one of the largest arms exporters now to the Middle East uh, and so on. And despite that, uh, it can still be in some quarters controversial to refer to Canada uh, as imperialist, including amongst the Canadian left, uh, though, as I said, that's changing. And there's been a tendency with some influence, certainly going back to the 1930s, but gets picked up with the new left in the 1960s, of treating Canada as a dependency on the United States, originally on Britain, then secondarily uh, after the Second World War on the United States. It was part of what we can broadly refer to as left the left left nationalist current in Canada, which was very influential in the Canadian left and Canadian social democratic um, formal organizations and unions uh, and so on, including amongst some who would identify as Marxist. And it's based, I think, as a number of people have shown, and I try to show, and Jeff and I try to show in, in Blood of Extraction, on empirically and theoretically unsustainable claim that the Canadian economy is simply dominated by foreign capital, American capital. Uh, in particular is what most people identify with, uh, and that it has no uh, industrial capitalist class of its own that has a interest and the capacity to project itself beyond Canadian borders. And our argument is that's just simply not true. And a number of people are making that argument now as well with fairly extensive empirical research. Uh, and um, some of the best-known left-leaning academics in Canada, in fact, well-known globally, they won the Isaac Deutscher Prize for their book a couple of years ago, are reproduced, Leo Panish and Sam Gindin, they reproduce the thesis that Canada is a, is a dependency. In fact, they extend that argument to say the entire world has been Canadianized. It's now a dependency of, of the United States. And so I'll say a few more things about Canada and Latin America in particular. Uh, but I just want to just note that 
Um, the book covers the broader patterns of Canada's engagement in the region with sections that focus on Central America uh, and sections that focus on the Andes. And the preparation for the book involved fairly extensive field research. It included a couple trips to Honduras following a 2009 military coup in Honduras, which we argue uh, the Canadian government was uh, an active supporter of, at least certainly the post-coup governments, uh, along with the United States. Uh, we also did field research in Guatemala, uh, Ecuador and Venezuela, and we interviewed on all these trips social movement activists, particularly anti-mining activists. Uh, we also uh, interviewed people working with um, sweatshop workers in Honduras who are uh, employed by one of the largest uh, sweatshop manufacturers in the world, a Canadian company based out of Montreal, uh, with extensive interest in the Americas. Uh, and uh, we or met with anti-coup activists in Honduras. Uh, as well as lawyers and media members in Honduras, an activist, an indigenous activist who was actually assassinated uh, just over a year ago. Sorry, just over a year ago? Yeah, just over a year ago, Bertha Caceres. Uh, and we interviewed all sorts of activists and um, uh, uh, politicians in Ecuador uh, around Rafael Correa's uh, first government. And we also did a lot of archival research through Canada's access to information, which that kind of work has not been done for this kind of uh, research project. And uh, it's involved thousands of pages of largely redacted, not exclusively redacted, uh, but not publicly available embassy communiques, situation reports from various countries in Latin America, schedules and plan preparation for meetings with mining executives, with local politicians, uh, strategies to address social movement organizers who are trying to challenge Canadian mining companies, uh, strategies to address in particular countries like Ecuador, governments that aren't towing uh, the line, the neoliberal line, permitting foreign investment and so on. So uh, it didn't provide any particular smoking gun, but what it does give you particularly when you piece together the research that we did, the interviews that we did in the region, as well as newspapers in the region, because Canadian newspapers don't cover this very much. But you can sort of put all these things together and you get a picture of just how aggressively um, Canadian companies, again, particularly mining, though not exclusively, Canadian companies, Canadian embassies, uh, Canadian diplomatic staff, and um, foreign affairs officials and development aid officials in Ottawa are actually engaged in what Canada calls a whole-of-government approach in the region to facilitate the expansion of Canadian investment in the face of either governmental opposition in certain countries or community and often widespread community opposition in a number of countries, including in, for example, Honduras, where... Uh, after the 2009 military coup, where Canada is one of the, in fact, the first really government to publicly recognize an election that took place in the context of a suspended constitution, even before the Americans did, in a context where most countries of the region were, were not willing to recognize that military uh, or the post-coup government, what you see from the embassy communiques and from local newspapers is the way in which can Canadian politicians and, 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 and diplomats behind the scenes are working to push for successfully, ultimately, a free trade agreement and are talking about strategies to help finance the writing of a new mining code that would be a very permissive neoliberal mining code in a context where the previous government that had been ousted in the military coup had supported a moratorium on new mining projects and so on. 
and, and that's just one particular example of what we're able to glean from uh, that kind of archival research and piecing it together with social movement, uh, the research uh, interviews with the social movement activists. So I'll just stop there and Jeff will talk a little bit more about the theory and I'll come back uh, with some data on Canadian Canada and the Americas. Okay, so the, the fundamental theoretical and analytical concern of the book was situating the Canadian state within the worldwide system of capitalist imperialism in relationship to Latin America. And so it makes sense to have some conceptual clarity then between the relationship uh, between imperialism and capitalism. And the idea here is that a key feature of capitalism as a system, once it is installed, is its self-expansionary character, its compulsion to envelop the world. There is a need for capital to constantly uh, expand markets, to constantly search for new raw materials, inputs for industrial processes, to constantly find new sources of cheap and disciplined labor outside of the boundaries in which it is uh, located. And these processes of self, the self-expansionary character of capitalism are intensified during moments of crisis, which are also systematically part of the capitalist uh, world system. That is to say, when you have a situation of a uh, problem of low profitability in a sustained way, when you have a problem of overaccumulation, often the way that capital tries to solve this problem is to expand uh, outside of its borders in search of precisely these ideas. New sources of raw materials for industrial input that are cheaper, new sources of discipline and cheap labor, new markets, and so on. And so the stress in our book, then, is to uh, look at imperialism's historic relationship with capitalism and its systemic character, its inevitable as a feature of capitalism. And the reason why we stress this is precisely because most of the work so far done on Canadian uh, mining uh, foreign policy has even, even the best work of the journalistic and academic varieties that is quite critical of Canadian mining has seen this as a problem of this or that government, a problem of this or that policy, and is therefore unable to explain theoretically the continuities you see across liberal, conservative, and back to liberal governments over this period. And so we think a theoretical basis for this is necessary. But the key problem you confront, particularly in mainstream uh, debates around foreign policy, is that when you look around the world today, uh, you don't see a proliferation of prolonged territorial conquest and rule by colonizers <coughs> over the colonized, as you did in the period of classical um, colonialism. Massive decolonization after uh, World War II in particular. Uh, and with the establishment of new independent states in the, in, the, in the global south, for most liberal thinkers, most conservative thinkers, and some Marxist thinkers, this meant the end of, uh, end of imperialism. For us, though, in the wake of World War II and the decolonization of former European empires, Imperialism didn't uh, go away. In fact, it, it assumed a new form, imperialism uh, without colonies. And according to the dynamics of the world system today, and really this only begins in the early 20th century, all international relations, we argue, are now internal to uh, the uh, imperatives of capitalist development on, on a world scale, and therefore are systematically disciplined in different ways, and the hierarchies between, uh, between the different states in the world system uh, are all internal to uh, capitalist uh, imperatives and capitalist powers for the first time in uh, world history, beginning in the early 20th century. Now, what this means is that 
and here we draw on Ellen Woods in her very important book, Empire of Capital, between the uh, analogous relationship between the social relations of a the domestic social relations of a mode of production and the external uh, relations that its form assumes. What that means in her book is when you look at uh, the, the feudal mode of production, for example, in European history, the principal class relation domestically was between uh, lord and peasant, in which the uh, extraction of surplus from peasants was very clear, the coercive component of that was very clear. It, was, it, it wasn't a lot of analytical work to determine that this was an exploitative relationship. In feudal empires, you saw, so if you look at Spain and Portugal in the uh, 16th, 17th, 18th centuries in its relationship to the Americas, these were feudal empires, not capitalist empires in our argument, and therefore you saw, you saw likewise long-term colonial settlement patterns of direct rule and exploitation. When you see uh, capitalism uh, emerge as a mode of production and replace feudalism, empires start to look quite different. And this, again, is analogous to the principal social relations of, pr of production domestically and what happens externally. So the principal class relation under capitalist mode of production is, of course, between labor and capital. But the reason why we go to work today, every day, isn't because our employer whips us or coerces us, it is an invisible coercion of the market. You principally have a choice, or you, you, you it, hypothetically have a choice not to go to work, but you're disciplined by the fact that you won't pay rent, you won't feed yourself, etc. It's mediated by, every relationship is mediated by money, your access to the basic reproductive access. And if you don't own means of production, the only way to get money to pay for things that you need is through an, an attempt to sell your labor power, the only commodity that you have. So what this means is that the coercive relationship between employer and, and employee assumes a less visible, less uh, immediately apparent form than it did under slavery, than it did under feudalism, and so on. But clearly, at least for us, the coercive relationship is, has not disappeared. It has assumed a form that you have to investigate beyond the appearances. Imperialism, once capitalism has universalized, that is to say all international relations between states are internal to the imperatives of capital, likewise the principal disciplining effect is economic. Okay, Not long-term colonial occupation, but discipline through debt, discipline through investment, discipline through uh, international financial institutions, and so on. And the core capitalist state, the core capitalist states within the world system systematically seek to reproduce their, their position inside of the world system uh, uh, in addition to the dynamics of uneven, and uneven combined development that characterize capitalist development uh, in general. So you see a deep structural inequality to the world system today, and this is reinforced both by the, uh, the unintended consequences of investment patterns of capital but also the intentional interventions of uh, states and financial institutions trying to support their capitals in particular. So it's obvious that the US replaces Britain in the early, early 20th century as the key uh, uh, power in the world, and it, we're not arguing that it is not the principal superpower in the world today. But to see imperialism merely as a, as a, as a symptom of US empire, we think, disguises and, and obscures much of what's going on in the world system. Secondary imperial powers and their actions in the world cannot be reduced to merely dictates of the United States. And this is very clear, we argue, in the case of uh, Canadian imperialism. Our book, though, 
stemming from that basic theoretical premise, moves to really the period uh, of neoliberalism, uh, the mid-70s until the, uh, until the current moment, and especially in the 90s, because this is when things take off in terms of the Canadian dynamic. But if you look at the world system of capitalism uh, since the 1970s, the principal novelty of this, uh, of this period is the emergence of multinational capital and multinational corporations as, an, as a novel key actor. That is, corporations that act across several uh, different states in their, in their, uh, productive, uh, in their productive chains. Um, and with multinational corporations uh, assuming this scale, the principal uh, measure of imperial dynamics, we argue, is uh, foreign direct investment. It is the principal way you, uh, you uh, trace uh, the different powers inside of the, the world system uh, during the neoliberal period. Foreign direct investment and the agents of foreign direct investment are multinational capital, but crucially not a nationless transnational capitalist class, but a uh, multinational capitals that retain headquarters and nationality and retain the necessity of states backing them in their, uh, in their activities abroad. The last two things that are a part of our um, theoretical uh, idea that we think is a novel contribution are the ecological and racist dynamics of imperialism in general and in the way they, they, the form that they assume in the Canadian dynamic. To talk about imperialism as an ecological regime is, uh, is to talk about imperialism in two different facets. On the one hand, it's clear that most of the foreign direct investment in Latin America over the last period, um, it, taking advantage of a commodities boom, was precisely in the natural resource sectors. Okay? Now, foreign direct investment is uh, attracted to particular geographic areas, in the case of raw materials, because of the biophysical properties of uh, naturally occurring in, in certain areas and not in other areas. So not all places have oil, not all places have mining minerals, etc. So there's an obvious, we talk about the flexibility of capital, but capital is not totally flexible. It, it requires geographically uh, located uh, resources, raw materials, and inputs. So this determines in part the dynamics. The second uh, layer of this, though, is that when, cap when, imperialist capital when imperialist capital enters into a scene, it also transforms those ecologies in very systematic ways that are not just ecological in the sense of, uh, in the sense of nature, but in the sense of uh, sociological and political dynamics that are associated with those. So if you blow up uh, the top of a glacier in order to establish an open pit gold mine, this has the immediate obvious effect uh, of the ecology of, of just blowing up a mountain. Uh, but underneath, in many cases, you, you also then uh, eliminate the key sources of fresh water from uh, peasant, uh, peasant livelihood production below. You undermine their ability to reproduce themselves. They become, uh, eventually over time, uh, part of the uh, uh, de-peasantized uh, population that moves into the city, already, uh, um, already overextended labor markets and so on joining the informal uh, working classes. These can be hundreds of kilometers away from where the mining impact is. These are not often considered in terms of the dynamics of uh, ecological components of imperialist intervention, <coughs> which is something that we try to do. And the last thing is that this ecological intervention also assumes typically in the current context racist forms of a particular type. And when I say of a particular type, obviously, just as imperialism has changed since its classic form under colonialism, 
so has the form that ideological justifications that are racist assume in the current period. You no longer have, at least not usually, Trump may be a new exception, but you don't have typically a, a crudely biological justification of pseudoscientific uh, racial hierarchies that you did in the late 19th century. Um, instead, you have various, um, uh, various cultural guises that this, that this takes. And in natural resource investment, in which uh, uh, indigenous populations and peasant populations in Latin America are sitting on mining mineral deposits, and they are resisting intervention into them by capital, the typical explanation or justification by companies and by states for their extraction and to get rid of that opposition is that these people are irrationally not using their land productively. It is the productive use, and productive is defined in terms of commercialization, the uh, capitalization of these processes. This is classical liberalism in a certain sense. It obviously goes back to John Locke and so on, but in the contemporary period, you can see this in World Bank documents, you can see this in Canadian diplomacy and so on. And so this uh, justification, so it is not just that Canadian corporations describe their activities in terms of corporate social responsibility and try to minimize their ecological and human rights abuses, which they obviously do, as we document very thoroughly in the book. It's worse than that, they uh, describe their presence as a benevolent gift to the domestic communities, turning what was unproductive land into productive land, creating sources and jobs and so on. But we'll show, or Todd will show next, how as a source of jobs, this is really uh, complete uh, mythology. So uh, I'll just say a few things about just the scale of the expansion of, of Canadian investment into the Americas in the form of foreign direct investment over the last quarter century, because it really has been quite significant, and that's followed the liberalization of, uh, of, of capital flows, uh, the rewriting of natural resource laws uh, and financial sector rules, the privatization of public assets, and so on. And uh, as we talk about in the book, um, and as I just mentioned in the context of Honduras, you see examples of where Canada, Canadian policy, both in foreign policy and its um, developmental policy, is in large, if not exclusive measure, shaped to facilitate the liberalization of trade and investment rules uh, in, in various ways. Uh, and so just in 1990, Canadian foreign investment stock in the Americas was at $2.5 billion. In, in, and it's not going to be a test on this, so you don't have to memorize the numbers. But it was at $2.5 billion. In 2000, it was at $25 billion. And in 2013, uh, the last year that I got numbers for it, uh, it was at $60 billion. Uh, and that's after the, or in the context of the, the largest or deepest global recession since the 1930s. So to, to 2013, that's an increase of 134% from the year 2000 and over 2,000% 2, from 1990. And what's interesting too is that these figures also don't include um, capital that's rerouted through offshore financial centers. That doesn't get booked in Canada in terms of statistical like measuring and so on. Uh, it's, only it's only capital that comes from Canada uh, into the region. Uh, and what's interesting about that too is that Canadian banks are the dominant foreign banks in the English Caribbean. Uh, they have 61%, they control 61% just a couple of years ago the status from, 61% of uh, banking assets in the English Caribbean, over $42 billion. Uh, and so just to put this growth of Canadian investment into Latin American perspective, 
uh, American foreign investment into the region over that same period, it's not surprisingly much higher uh, in absolute terms, but it increased actually at a, at a quite a bit, uh, quite a slower pace, 79% from 2000 to 2012, uh, and 555% from 1990 to 2012. And notably, as a share of total foreign direct investment into Latin America and the Caribbean combined, U.S. foreign investment decreased uh, from 46%, or actually almost 47% in 1990, to 38% in 2012. So it's still the dominant investor in the region, and while all the consequences, what we can talk about, but it's actually, relatively speaking, declined. And I'm, we're not making the argument that the U.S. is now post-hegemonic in the region, because there are people who make that argument, that's not our argument, but it's just trying to sort of look at the sort of the shifts in the region and, and the role that Canada's playing. So from 2007 to 2012, uh, Canada was the second largest external uh, foreign investor or source of foreign investment into Latin America and the Caribbean, uh, and that's a jump from the previous decade. Uh, and so while Canadian investment, or American investment, as I said, is much greater than Canadian investment in the region, the rate of Canadian investment is actually much greater than the rate of American investment as measured against their country's GDPs, gross domestic products. Canadian economy is roughly one-tenth the size, more or less, of its American counterpart. But Canadian foreign investment into Latin America and the Caribbean is one-fourth of that. So the orientation is, uh, is an interesting dynamic, uh, we think. And so uh, that investment, as I've alluded to, it has occurred across a range of sectors. I've mentioned um, sweatshop manufacturing, uh, uh, Oil and gas companies, companies that got their start in the tar sands and oil fields in Canada, pipeline companies, uh, they have also played a role in, in, in the expansion of Canadian investment into Latin America, often quite controversially, uh, facing opposition wherever they go. Uh, but uh, it's really finance and mining where Canadian capital is, is the most prominent, as, as we've suggested. Uh, and that has really been the takeoff uh, in the last 25 years or so. Banking and mining go back a century or more from Canada into the region, but it's really in the last little while. And so it's worth noting that Canada's mining industry, I could say a bit more about the banks if, you, if, if, if people want, but uh, the Canada's mining industry is the largest in the world. Most of the world's mining companies are located in Canada. Not all the largest are in Canada, but the majority of Canadian mining companies are in Canada. Uh, and the Toronto Stock Exchange and the Toronto Venture Exchange are the two most important uh, uh, indexes for raising capital uh, globally in the mining industry by quite a wide margin, actually. Uh, and so Toronto has, well, Toronto and Vancouver have become important centers for mining, and that's a key nodal point for them into the uh, global capitalist uh, hierarchy. Uh, and the, um, the Americas account for over half of Canadian mining assets held abroad, so just over $72 billion a couple years ago. Uh, and this has also led to, in a context, as Jeff alluded to, the commodities boom through the 2000s and the liberalization of capital flows, making it both easier to invest, not having to go through as many environmental hoodles, hurdles, sorry, and being able easier to repatriate profits, whether it's to the offshore financial centers in the Caribbean or back home uh, to Canada, it's led to what we suggest are really have been super profits for Canadian mining companies. Uh, and so 
a few years ago, more than that, 2012, Canadian operating mines in Latin America, so operating mines only, uh, not including exploration investments and so on, had a combined revenue of uh, just under $20 billion. And so we did a little experiment. We looked at the three largest mining companies in, the re in, in Latin America. They're gold mining companies and, and they're Canadian companies. I can give you the names if you want to. And so what we did is we looked at how much money they've made from their operating, their, what, at, a couple of years ago before we finished the book, what were their, op their operating mines. So all their operating mines up to 2013. Uh, and so by 2013, the oldest mine had opened in 1998. So from 1998 to 2013, three mining companies, the biggest in the region, gold mining companies, had a total of 15 mines in operation producing and selling on the world market. Uh, and they made a combined, those three companies, net profit of $15 billion from their Latin American operations. And these are companies... Pretty, well, at least two of them have global operations. So just from Latin America alone over that period, they made $15 billion, those three companies. The rate of profit from these mining companies was 45%. And so if you look at the rate of profit just from investing in the Canadian economy, which is comparable to other advanced capitalist countries, the rate of profit, it is quite a bit lower than that. My numbers. 11.8% over that same period. So the rate of profit of 42%. Now, of course, again, that is driven in part by the boom driven by China itself. But nevertheless, those are significant numbers. And if you factor in um, taxes and royalties, where we could get that information from, because this is just from reading annual reports for companies, and they're not all systematic in terms of the information they provide. But so, for example, the biggest one of them is Barrick Gold, and some people might be aware of Barrick Gold because um, its reputation is international. Uh, but the, for Barrett Gold, if you, if you factor in taxes and royalties, uh, its, its rate of profit after taxes and royalties are, are included is 42.4%. Uh, so really, really high. And if you measure like, what they spend on corporate social responsibility, because if you go to a, a website of any mining or resource extraction company, corporate social responsibility is one of the first things you're going to see. It's a, it's, it's a tiny little fraction of a pittance that is a drop in the bucket compared to the amount of money that they make and that they're, of course, repatriating back home. And just on that, too, uh, so the Economic Commission for Latin America and the Caribbean, which is the United Nations body or uh, linked to the United Nations, it did a report a couple of years ago on um, that, that found that of the 12 major industrial uh, sectors of the economy my, in, in the Americas, mining was the worst employer. It had the lowest rate of employment per million dollars or half a million dollars invested by a significant margin. It's a capital-intensive industry now. Right? So, it doesn't, so the claims that mining companies, the Canadian government makes in its propaganda that they're providing jobs for people, as Jeff alluded to, um, it's a lie. It's, it's just not true. Right? So it's dispossessing people but you're not even remotely close to being able to make up for the jobs for people. And what they also find, and other development scholars find, is that mining, mining towns, if you will, or mining investment becomes a kind of an enclave economy because most of the, the investment, if not all of it, comes from abroad. And because of the liberalization rules, they can repatriate the profit. And so the link, what they call linkages, forward or backward linkages, into the local economy are, are marginal at best. And the amount that miners make, which is good relative to people, other people in the economy, in the local community perhaps, 
the ones who have been dispossessed and had to migrate to urban centers, is, is nowhere near a, 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 able to make up for the loss of land and resources and so on, uh, or the amount of money that's being repatriated. So it's actually not a development strategy. They'll say that, but it's not. And there's no evidence, no meaningful evidence to suggest that's a development strategy, not in that context. And so just the last thing I'll say here is that uh, Canada's engagement as the Canadian state has been, as I said earlier, has been a, a kind of whole-of-government approach. That's their language in their foreign policy. Uh, by aggressively pursuing trade and investment agreements, which are basically property rights for capital. They're more about investment than they are about trade, trade agreements, um, despite the language. Uh, I've alluded to aid policy, which not exclusively is about facilitating the expansion of Canadian companies, but plays a big role. So in the last 15 or 16 years, the Canadian government committed over $100 million to aid, or sorry, mining reform projects through uh, Canadian aid agency. Mining reform basically means neoliberalizing um, rules, regulations, and training people in various government ministries in Latin America to facilitate that process. Uh, embassies, as we have mentioned, have been aggressively engaged in supporting Canadian investment. One uh, researcher who was testifying before uh, Parliament in Ottawa on this question ref said that a local government official had told him that C Canadian embassies seemed to him to be little more than public relations companies for or public relations firms for Canadian mining companies. Uh, and as we talk about in the book, I'm, I don't have time to go into it here, but we can talk about it, is you see also increasing amounts of money through aid, the aid agency, and through foreign, uh, through the what's now called Global Affairs Canada, being spent on democracy promotion, supporting particular organizations and not others, and through security spending. So in, in the Central American Isthmus, in the last few years, you've seen an increase. I mean, not a huge increase relative to, say, the United States, but an increase nonetheless of security spending on uh, reform for police and other security apparatuses in Guatemala and Honduras, whose reputation is not a good one in terms of how they address human rights issues. So I'll stop there. Okay, so um, the last thing we wanted to do was to end on the uh, Latin American situation because one of the temptations of writing uh, a book on imperialism in order to uh, strengthen your case is to um, exaggerate the victim status of the receiving recipient uh, uh, region or country and so on. And we want to maintain the idea that uh, large sections of uh, Latin American populations around mining zones are indeed victims of Canadian imperialism but this dynamic isn't reducible to a story of uh, victims in two senses. On the one hand, you have uh, an extraordinary uh, level of uh, resistance. Uh, over 100 open conflicts in uh, mining uh, companies uh, at any given time over the last uh, 15, uh, 15 years, some of which have had uh, some successes. And again, some of this resistance also in contradictory ways has expressed itself in not just in social movements but in, um, in governments that have attempted to assert at least a relative autonomy from North American uh, intervention uh, and projection of power. The other thing, so we spend a lot of time uh, doing extensive field work, dozens of interviews across Central America and the Andes precisely to incorporate in a serious uh, an integral way the uh, voices of activists actually on the front lines of uh, resisting, uh, particularly Canadian mining companies, but also 
uh, other forms of Canadian intervention. And on the other hand, you have uh, domestic uh, collaboration with uh, Canadian mining capital, particularly in the forms of right-wing, uh, when right-wing governments have assumed state power, either through elections or through military coups, they are uh, um, um, monumentally important for the unfolding of Canadian investment. Uh, it, and, uh, and their relationships to Canadian embassies and so on um, is one not of friction, but of, uh, of, of fluid dialogue and facilitation. Um, uh, there are also domestic uh, recipients, uh, sort of the petty beneficiaries of uh, Canadian mining investment, um, uh, buying off different sections of communities of resistance uh, in order to divide and, and rule and so on. The other thing to consider is the dynamics of the Latin American political economy and Latin American history of social movement struggle over the last period, because it is only in understanding both the dialectic of capitalist expansion and the resistance to it uh, that you can figure out how and the limits and the extent to which Canadian capital has had its way inside of the region. So the key thing to understand, I think, as a backdrop is the fact that uh, prior to the 1980s, almost nowhere in Latin America were mining minerals, natural gas and oil, agricultural commodities. Uh, agricultural commodities is, is, a, is, is slightly outside of this. Um, uh, were they open to private investment? That is to say, you had national <coughs> state-owned enterprises owning most of the natural resources of Latin America. Over the 1980s and 1990s, not as a product of, uh, of, the argument is not that this is a product of Canadian imperialism, but worldwide neoliberal restructuring, which had imperialist dynamics, of course, you had a fundamental transformation of this dynamic in which almost all natural resources, almost all state-owned enterprises are now private. All of these new uh, zones uh, that were uh, either publicly held property forms, that is, property of the state or communal forms of property, that is uh, sometimes collective land use by indigenous peoples or connect collective land use rights by peasants, depending on different constitutions in the region, all of that had been opened up for accumulation opportunities. Now this is an extraordinary opportunity, but it has a delayed impact in fact. Investment in the 90s is not very high, right? There isn't the immediate uh, bonanza for capital because c commodity prices were quite low, particularly at the end of the 90s when neoliberalism enters into a crisis in South America, negative rates of growth for almost four years throughout South America. The key to uh, the Canadian uh, dynamic of intervention in mining has to do with uh, the 2003 to 2011 commodities boom in particular. Uh, but that wouldn't have been possible without the previous uh, privatization dynamics. Between 2003 and 2011, in response to the most dynamic zone of accumulation in the world market, China, prices of mining minerals, natural gas, and oil start to go through the roof. And Canada, Canadian mining companies, which had began their operations at relatively low commodity prices, but still profitable in the 90s, are massive beneficiaries of that commodities boom. And what you see, though, is... Uh, two contradictory dynamics that play into this and that complicate the story. The one is you have uh, this rise of socio-ecological and often indigenous resistance to these uh, expansionary uh, uh, interventions um, uh, all throughout Latin America. It's 
totally impossible to map the number of these that are happening. It, you look anywhere, and this is and this is happening. There are no Canadian mining investments that don't have some uh, domestic opposition of, of some force or consequence. The other thing is that center-left or left governments came to office throughout South America and parts of Central America precisely at the time of this commodity boom. And this is where the story becomes complicated because some of these center-left governments uh, effectively uh, while speaking a language in opposition to imperialism, often, in fact, embrace Canadian multinational mining capital. And so you see some, uh, some crude anti-imperialist theory that simply uh, uh, embraces left governments as a, as a clear opposition to uh, imperial powers. But in fact, uh, in many of these cases, you had um, in Bolivia, in Ecuador, in Brazil, and so on, a facilitation of, of multinational capital. They changed what they called them. In Bolivia, they called them partners, not bosses. But it is clear who the bosses are, given the, the, the accelerating rates of profit over this period. Very, very high profits for these companies, way higher than in the 90s. In other cases, you have uh, some opposition uh, between, uh, or at least contradictory relations. In the case of Ecuador, in the beginning of the Correa regime, you have a clear confrontation with Canadian mining capital but then uh, effectively a submission three years later and a radical turn to the right that embraces uh, um, uh, very clearly um, Canadian mining expansion. And so what we, and when you see center-left governments make that alliance with multinational capital, what you start to see is contradictions on the ground between the social movement bases that brought these governments into office and those governments themselves. And you see this in the use, the extraordinary contradiction, for example, in Ecuador, of the use of anti-terrorism laws against indigenous anti-mining activists uh, uh, in Canadian expansion in, in, the, in the region. The indigenous movement that put Korea into office in 2006. So in order to have a, uh, a understanding not just of imperialist theory, but of serious uh, theoretical orientation of anti-imperialism, it's not enough to just look at the level of state governments it's, uh, it's, it's crucial, we argue, to consider the grassroots anti-imperialist dynamics, the front lines of confrontation with Canadian capital, which isn't always the state, even when the state is run by uh, a at least rhetorically sympathetic government. And it's obviously not the state when it's the Colombian state working in alliance with Canadian capital or the Honduran military regime working in alliance with Canadian capital. So we tried to trace out all of those particularities of the local scene so that this isn't just a story of, of uh, Canadian uh, intervention and, a, and, a, and a, an easy facilitation of what Canadian interests are in actually realizing those goals. It's always in uh, massive confrontation with the capacities of uh, popular struggle to limit those uh, dynamics with varying degrees of success.